0: All right, well, it's great to have all of you here today for uh, part two. Technically, it's part three of our series called The Core. What I did is three weeks ago, I started a series where we're going to talk about what are the foundational principles of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So we have a problem in a lot of churches and a lot of Christian cultures where we assume everybody's heard the gospel. We assume everybody knows the plan of salvation, And so instead of proclaiming the gospel, we assume people know it, and a lot of people don't know it. A lot of people hear bits and pieces of God's plan of salvation, but sometimes some people have never heard the whole plan. And we don't hear the whole plan, you don't understand all that God wants to do in your life. See, understanding the gospel is really core to understanding the rest of the Bible. So during this series, we're taking five Sundays, and we're going to talk about what are core principles of the gospel. Last week we talked about principle number one, today is principle number two. And the reason we're doing this, and the reason I'm even repeating some of last week's message, is because it is foundational. It's really necessary for us to understand. Because see, when people don't understand the gospel, this is what happens to a lot of people in our culture that don't understand the message of Christianity or the message of salvation. They think Christianity is following a bunch of rules, now, there's a bunch of rules and regulations that God has established, and if you follow those, and if you're obedient to the rules, God's going to like you, and then you're going to be saved. But it doesn't take a, too long to figure out it's really hard to live up to biblical standards without the Holy Spirit working inside of you. So then, what people do is they start discounting the principles in the Bible. They start saying, well, that's really not relevant for today or that's a little bit outdated. So instead of living up to the biblical standards, we lower the biblical standards to our level of behavior and that's where we live at. And see, the problem is, that was never the plan of Christianity. Christianity was never designed to be a set of rules that you follow. It was never designed to be rules and regulations. Christianity's always been a relationship with God through Jesus Christ it's not a bunch of rules it's a relationship then after Jesus Christ you have a relationship with Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit dwells in you and the Holy Spirit helps you understand how much God loves you and how much God cares for you and then your behavior starts to change because you want to honor God to glorify God but it never starts with your behavior changes to get God to like you but we make that mistake a lot in our society in our culture by thinking it's up to us to justify our behavior before God. That's not the way it works. It's always the relationship with Jesus comes first. So last week we talked about core, core one was that God is the holy, just, and gracious creator of all things. That was our message last week. We talked about how God created us in his image, how God created us and formed us with our, his hands, and then he breathed life into us. But then God's also just. He's not going to tolerate sin. He has to bring judgment to guilty people. And he has to declare innocent people innocent. But then God also has this gracious side of him that shows love and compassion, that he wants to bring people into relationship. He wants to heal people and forgive people of their sins. He wants to restore people. So we see that gracious side of God. So we talked last week about how did God react to Adam and Eve after they sinned? See, a lot of people look at the story of Adam and Eve and we think, oh yeah, God got really mad at them so he kicked them out of the garden as punishment. See, that's not the story at all. The story is God had them leave the garden to protect them. To protect them so he could restore them. So we went through different things that we learned from the story of Adam and Eve. That the very first thing that God did after Adam and Eve sinned, he didn't punish them. He didn't yell at them. He looked for them. He found them and he spoke to them. He showed his love to them when they sinned. That the very first thing God did is he went to find them. And the second thing that God did is that he gave them a promise. See, again, he didn't punish them. God said to him, what I'm going to do to you in Genesis 3.15, God said, I'm going to send a man. Remember the scripture because I'm coming back to it. God said, I'm going to send a man who's going to destroy the serpent who did this to you. He said, I'm going to send somebody who's going to destroy the evil that just happened in your life. And then God goes on and he says, I'll tell you what, now I'm going to have to tell you the consequences of your sin. That's because God is just. But see, you notice in God's justice, it wasn't vindication, it wasn't punishment, it was always restoration. Because the exact next thing that God does to Adam and Eve is he provides for them. God's grace comes in and God provides for them and covers their nakedness in the garden. He covers the shame that they're experiencing. And the fifth thing that God does is that he protects them. This is God's love and justice and grace all coming together as one. See, like I said, some people think that God kicked them out of the garden because he's mad at them to punish them. But see, God kicked out, had Adam and Eve leave the garden to prevent them from eating from the tree of life. Because if they would have ate from the tree of life, they would have lived forever. And they would never die. They would live forever in their sin state. And that's not good. God never planned for everybody to live for eternity in sin. But God planned for everybody to live for eternity in perfection. So the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin was death. But actually, death was a blessing from God to break the cycle of sin in their life. So they had to leave the garden so they wouldn't eat the tree of life forever. But see, that's a beautiful thing because so often we think of God as this God in heaven that's mad at us, that's just waiting to punish us when we do something wrong. He's waiting to clobber, but you see in the story of Adam and Eve, everything he did was motivated by his love and his grace. Everything that he did was for restoration of his wholeness to bring us into a relationship with him. So today we're going to go to core two of the gospel. We're going to talk about how we are all created by God, but how we're all corrupted by sin. Some people wonder, are you going to preach a whole message on sin? I think, is that really necessary? Don't we all understand that, that we're all sinful? The problem is in our culture, a lot of people don't understand sin anymore. See, in our culture, we used to live by what we would call Christian values. That was kind of the norm of society, that you go back a generation or two, and we all lived by biblical standards in our society. But that's all changed over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Now society has adopted a new set of norms that's no longer biblical. And so our society often doesn't understand that we all have sinned because society says, no, sin's irrelevant. Irrelevant. You just do what you want to do and when you want to do it. And so sometimes it's hard to us to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ because people think, well, I'm not really a sinner. I'm not that bad of a person. I've not done that much wrong. So if you don't think you're a sinner, then really you don't need Jesus because Jesus came to save sinners. So if we're going to be faithful and clear to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, We have to be faithful and clear on what sin is all about. We can't ignore sin. Because if you ignore sin, you don't need Jesus. So that's why we're talking so much about sin today, to help us understand, help us be able to articulate clearly the sinful nature of human beings. Because when you understand the sinfulness of human beings, you understand more the love of God and the plans that he wants to do in each of our lives. So the Bible talks about three core teachings of sin. What are the three things that it says about sin? Number one, it says we've all rebelled against God. This is a hard statement for people. Like I said, they're like, wait a minute, I haven't rebelled against God. I haven't done anything that bad. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't robbed a bank. You know, why are you telling me I've rebelled against God? Well, see, in Romans three verse ten, it says, as it is written, none is righteous. Not, no, not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside together they have become worthless and no one does good not even one remember that word worthless too i'll give you two things to remember genesis 3 15 and worthless we'll come back to those it's not a very flattering view of the human condition that every single person on earth is a sinner That's clearly what the Bible says every single person is. The text is simply saying that nobody's righteous, meaning nobody can come to God on their own. That nobody can prove their worth to God on their own. That nobody can justify their their lives or their sins before God on their own. Because see, sin always leads to separation. And that's the second point of the gospel message, is that we are all separated from God by sin. See Romans three twenty three. If if you didn't like Romans three ten and didn't catch on to everybody's a sinner, Romans three twenty three kind of repeats it and says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person sinned, every person falls short from the glory of God. See, Isaiah fifty nine two goes on and it says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Sin always separates from God. Sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Therefore, a person with sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And so what the Bible's teaching is that every part of a person is sinful. Every part of mankind, your body, your soul, your spirit, your thoughts, your likes, your dislikes, everything is corrupted by sin. And there's nothing that the human can do to present themselves as sinless before God. So sin's always going to separate And since there's nothing that we can do to be reconciled to God, we need somebody that can reconcile us to God. And that's the point of salvation, that Jesus is the only one that can reconcile us to God. See, Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins. This is God speaking to us, saying, All of you are dead in your trespasses and sin." And what's the one thing that we know about a dead person? is that there is absolutely nothing a dead person can do for themselves. Nothing. If you're dead, it's going to take someone outside of you that's stronger, that can do anything about your situation. And that's where the plan of God God comes in, where the plan of salvation comes in. See, without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we're looking at eternal separation from God. As it says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, as I said said earlier, death is a consequence of sin. Death is a judgment from God. See, God always uses His His judgment as a blessing and a provision. See, without death, we would still be living in the Garden of Eden, Eden, sinning forever. And without death, Jesus would never have been able to die on the cross to save us from our sins. So we see how God took his act of justice and turned it around to be the greatest blessing in our life. You see the love of God in every single thing that he does. Even though you think it's judgment, that's love. That's the grace of God. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55 it says, O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? Because for a believer in Jesus Christ, death has lost its victory over us. Death is what gives us eternal life. So today we're going to move on to core number two of the gospel message, that we are created by God, but we are all corrupted by sin. Last week I told you we focused on how, Adam and e- how God reacted to Adam and Eve when they sinned. This week I want to talk about Cain and Abel. I want to talk about the two sons of Adam and Eve. And I want to talk about the progression of sin that we see in Cain's life. So after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, you kind of would have assumed, okay, they learned a pretty tough lesson. They learned about sin. They learned about what they did wrong. They learned a big consequence of sin, that they were no longer living in the garden. And they had to work pretty hard. So you'd kind of imagine that probably they learned a good lesson and that they taught this very well to their children. Saying to the kids, hey, look what happens with you sin. Don't do it. Don't do it. you expect that would be the situation, but it's not so. Sin always progresses. It continues to grow. So the first thing that we know about Cain and Abel is that they were born with a sinful human nature. We just talked about that. But just to repeat, Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. David goes on and repeats the same point where he says, Lord, I have been a sinner from birth from the moment my mother conceived me. So the sinfulness passed on to Adam and Eve, to their children, Cain and Abel. Probably a lot of you know the story, but I want to read through the story and I want to talk about how sin progressed in the life of Cain, how we see it grow over time. So we're going to start with Genesis 4, verse 1 through 5. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flocks. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look down with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So you read that scripture and you kind of think to yourself, okay, what's the problem? Both Cain and Abel brought a sacrifice. God liked one. He didn't like the other. Why? What was the problem? Was there a difference between the meat offering, the animal offering versus the produce offering? Was that the problem? We know that wasn't the problem because God would never expect Cain to give uh, uh, an animal offering because he he didn't raise animals. That's not the problem. Hebrew 4 gives us a little insight. In Hebrew 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended is righteous, by commending him by accepting his gifts. So Hebrews tells us that the difference between Cain and Abel's offering is that Abel gave in faith. <clears throat> and you wonder, well, how did Abel give in faith? See, in the text it said that Abel gave the first fruit offering. He gave the first See, the first offering is you give God what is first produced in your land or what's first produced in your cattle. So Abel gave the very first sheep that one of his lambs would have produced. Cain did not bring the first of his harvest. So you kind of wonder, well, why didn't Cain just give the first? Abel gave the first. Why didn't Cain just follow what God had said? And that's the second progression of sin that we're going to talk about is that sin is always going to lead to a lack of faith. Because the essential theme in the Bible is that God always wants us to live with trust and confidence in Him. That God wants to provide for every single one of our needs. That God wants to give us the peace and perfection that only He can provide. But the biggest obstacle that we often face as believers is our lack of faith in God the lack of faith that he's really going to provide for us. See, starting in the book of Exodus, Moses tells the people of Israel several different times the importance of giving the first fruit offering. He tells them that 13 times a year, they're supposed to go before God and bring the first of their land or the first of their, their, their produce or the first of their vegetables, supposed to bring that to God. And see, the, the prophet Nehemiah repeats the instructions of Moses He says we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground, the first fruits of all of our fruit, of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister into the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. So you're probably wondering, Why is giving to the Lord the first so important? Why does God require this? Because we know from the Bible, God doesn't need anything. It's not like he needed some bushel baskets of produce. See, the issue is God always wants your heart. And giving is always a reflection of your heart. See, Cain never gave his heart to God in his offering. Abel was the one who gave his heart to God because he gave what's first. See, the problem is a lack of faith is always going to lead to this attitude of God's not going to provide for me. And that's our third point. Said a lack of faith, God will not provide for me. How does giving the first demonstrate faith? Because when you give the very first what's produced, you're going to have to trust God that the rest of what is produced is enough to take care of your needs. See, when Abel went before the Lord, he gave the first fruit. One of his sheep had their first, one of his lambs had their first sheep. Oh, do I have that backwards. I should have said dogs and puppies or something. Anyway, the mother gave birth to the very first little lamb. And Abel gave that to the Lord, not knowing would that mother ever be able to produce another lamb. But he had confidence in the Lord saying, you know, God, I trust you. If you're saying give this first fruit offering, I'm going to give it to you because I know you're going to provide for everything else I need. See, what Cain did, Cain harvested all of his fields and all of his vegetables and all of his fruit and what was ever left over that he didn't need, he gave that to God. That was his disobedience. That's why Abel gave in faith because he gave trusting that God's going to provide everything else. See, that's what God wants to do us in everything in life. God never asks us to do anything, calls us to build anything, do any ministry without providing for us. But it's always that stepping out in faith saying, "All right, I'll do it. But God, you're going to have to provide. And that's why Abel, and that's what Abel did. So why didn't Cain just give the first fruit offering? See, eventually, if you don't have faith that God's going to provide for your needs, it's going to lead to pride. And pride always says, I can do it without God. I'm going to do it on my own because I don't trust God. So pride says, I'll do it all on my own. See, Cain did come with an offering, but it wasn't what God had specified. Why Cain do that? Why didn't he give the full offering? So you remember back in Genesis, earlier in Genesis 2, when, God, when the devil deceived Adam and Eve? What the devil said to them was, did God really say that? That's how he got Adam and Eve off track. That's probably the same thing that, God, that the devil said to Cain. Did God really say you had to give the first? Did God really mean that? See, Cain's like many of us where it's easy to doubt the commands of God and say over time, you know, those are a little bit outdated. Those are a little irrelevant. Those are really not specific to me. I don't have to follow those. God's not really stuck with all those details. Popular in our culture, we like to say, you know, I'm a pretty good person overall, so I don't got to worry about that. We like to say to you, you know, if, God would never really condemn me for not obeying to the detail. See, that's exactly what Cain was doing. He was saying, I really don't have to honor God. It's not that big of a deal. I can get by what I'm doing. And you might be wondering, why was that a big deal to God? Why did God make such a big deal of Abel gave the first, Cain gave the last? The answer simple, that God always wants to take care of all of our needs. God cannot supply for our needs if we don't have any faith in him. See, we need to get over this idea that God is mad and wants to punish us. That's so popular in this culture in the West of Michigan, thinking God's mad at me, he just wants to punish me, he's just waiting to hurt me, he's just waiting to bang me on the head. That wasn't God's attitude at all with Cain. How do we know that wasn't God's attitude with Cain? Because God went after Cain over and over and over again to lead him to repentance. At least three different times, God confronted Cain to try to say, stop, stop what you're doing. But see, eventually over time, sin is going to progress to the point of anger. And that's where Cain was in verse 6. See, a lack of dependence on God is going to finally lead to anger at God. In verse 6, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face so downcast? So you remember when God asks a question in the Bible, it's not because he's looking for an answer. Like he's saying, hey, Cain, uh, tell me what's going on. God knows what's going on. What God's saying to Cain is, hey, Cain, think about it. Cain think about, why are you angry? Why are you so upset? Why are you depressed? Think about what's going on in your life. See, God's saying to Cain, "Think about your attitude, your behavior should be kind of speaking to you a little bit of what's going on inside of your heart. So the Lord's trying to uh, encourage Cain to think about what's going on deep down inside of him. And He's warning Cain, "You need to get rid of this anger." He's telling Cain, you've got to get rid of this anger and follow me. But see what Cain do? He didn't respond to the Lord questioning him. Instead, he stayed angry. He wanted God's blessing, but he didn't want to give his obedience to God. Sounds kind of crazy, but the truth is how many of us do that on a daily basis? We want God to bless us, but we're really not ready to cross over into full obedience to God. See, that's what God is saying to Cain. His problem is we get anger enters in. See, the thing is, God could have struck Cain dead at this point for what he had done. But what does God do? He does the exact opposite. See, Cain's anger leads him to the next point, is that anger is going to cause us to ignore the warnings of God. But what does God do, even though Cain's not responding? the verse 7, you see the, the grace of God... In, coming back to Cain and God says to Cain, Cain, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? He's asking him that question. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. See, look at the love that God's extending to Cain. He's saying to Cain, look Cain, I'm going to tell you what you can do to make this right. Cain, you don't have to figure out on your own what to do. But God says, you go back and do the sacrifice again. Everything's going to be right with me. He tells him, go back and do it again. Paul says in a similar way, Paul says in Ephesians, he says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. See, God's warning, Cain, you can't give the devil a foothold you've got to get rid of that anger, otherwise it's going to overtake you. But Cain didn't take the advice of the Lord. He repeated another warning from God. He repeated another opportunity to repent. So in fact, he ignored the warnings of God and sin eventually took over Cain. That's point seven. By ignoring the warnings of God will eventually allow sin to overtake you. And we read in the next verse what happened. Verse eight, it says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. See, God just warned Cain, telling him what's not going to happen to him if he doesn't check his anger, if he doesn't check his emotions. And what does Cain do? He goes out and kills his brother. In 1 John, verse 3, it describes the murder. And it describes it as a violent murder one john uses the terminology that uh, of how cain killed his brother the same way that you would slaughter an animal that you'd first slit its throat before you'd kill it a lot of commentators think that cain's heart was so filled with anger and rage that he was basically saying to god okay you want a sacrifice you can have him i killed him for you kind of the way he would just spite god with his anger and how mad he was at god he's such a reminder when you watch Cain's attitude. What will happen over time? Would he ignore the warnings of God when you forget to repent and when God comes to you time and time again? But see again, We see the next verse that God will come again to Cain to try to offer reconciliation. But instead Cain shows the condition of his heart that had grown very hard. And that's point eight. That when sin overtakes a person, their heart grows very hard. In verse 9 of Genesis 4, we read again. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? Cain said, I don't know. He replied, Am I my brother's keeper? Then the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on earth. See, after several warnings, after several times that God tried to get Cain to repent, the justice of God had to come forth and God had to say to Cain, okay, here's the consequence you're going to deal with. This is a result of your lack of repentance. This is a result of you your killing your brother. So it leads him to the consequence, which is point number nine. Finally, sin leads to abandoning God in isolation. <clears throat> but listen to what Cain says after God tells him his punishment. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Again, instead of Cain repenting and saying, I'm sorry, forgive me, Lord, and going back and make the right sacrifice, what does Cain do? He complains about his punishment. He complains that it's too harsh. I love what Proverbs 19 says. It says, people ruin their lives by their own foolishness. And then they're angry at the Lord. That's exactly what Cain was doing. I totally messed up my own life. I totally went down the wrong road. I killed my brother. I refused to repent. I refused to repent. I refused to repent. And now I'm mad at God because I got myself into this situation. But you see the hand of God that was on Cain time and time again to get him to repent. But Cain just eventually came full of self-pity. It's interesting that he was worried that he'd get the treatment that he gave his brother, that somebody would violently kill him. So what does the glory do for Cain? He extends grace to him another time. We read in verse 15, it says, but the Lord said to Cain, not so. Anybody who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out of the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain takes his brother's life. He certainly deserves death for his actions. But God spares him. God speaks to him finds him, looks for him, offers to lead him to repentance time and time again. But Cain keeps saying, no, no, no. It finally ultimately led to Cain's isolation from the Lord. See, there's a lot of irony in this story. There's a lot of irony in the story between Cain and Abel. See, when Cain was born, remember I told you, remember Genesis 3, verse 15 that God said he would send a man that would crush the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, it doesn't say he's going to send Jesus. It says he's going to send a man. So when Cain was born, his parents exclaimed, look what I got. You look in the original language, they basically said, look what we got. We got a man. See, Adam and Eve thought Cain was going to be the deliverer that Cain was going to be the son that would redeem them. That would be the one that would crush the serpent. So when Abel was born, they named him worthless. They named him pointless. Kind of like, why do we need him? We got the good one, Cain. Yeah, a lot of scholars believe that they're twins, that Cain came out first, just the way the language is, that really doesn't change the story at all if they're twins or not twins. But see, Adam and Eve looked at Cain, and they thought, great, this is the one that the Lord's going to use to redeem us, to get us out of the situation we're in, to bring us back to the garden. And to Abel, they thought, you're the worthless one. We really don't need you. So you can only imagine the family dynamics growing up where he got the good son and he got the worthless son. But notice, which son became the righteous son? The worthless son. The worthless son. Found favor with God. The worthless son gave his heart to the Lord. The worthless son was the obedient son. But the one who thought he had everything going for himself, the one who thought he was the deliverer, turned out to be the murderer. And that's the irony in the story. But that's the good news of salvation. That anybody who thinks they're the worthless one can become the righteous one. Anyone who thinks they're the worthless one, God can redeem and restore and bring new life and new hope. And that's the beauty of the story of Cain and Abel. Yet, Abel, you know, he did die. That didn't go too well. But Abel did die with favor from the Lord, that he did die knowing the Lord. See, there's a lot of similarities between Cain and Abel, even in Abel's life and even Jesus' life. That when Jesus came to the earth, people looked at him and thought he was the worthless one. Mm-hmm. They looked at the government, thinking the government would deliver them from the oppression in the world. And they looked at Jesus and thought he was worthless. And look at Jesus, he died as well. But the worthless one who they thought Jesus was, was the righteous one. And that's why we're here today. And that's why we have a gospel to proclaim is because Jesus came and took the role of the worthless one so that we could be the righteous one. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's core two of the gospel.